0: Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Nose. It's the end of the week. It's time to talk about culture. Actually, it's always time to talk about culture, but here at the end of the week, we do The Nose. Today on The Nose, Tanisha Dugan, artistic producer at TheaterWorks. She joins us via the miracle of Skype. Lucy Gelman is editor of The Arts Paper and host of WNHH Radio's Kitchen Sink. Later on the show, we are going to discuss a new release. Uh, It's available on the HBO Max platform. Uh, It is called Judas and the Black Messiah. It is the story uh, of Black Panther activist Fred Hampton and his murder. But I think even more significantly, it is the story of the man who betrayed him. And these roles are played by two amazing actors, two of America's really best actors of the moment. So, but before we do that, uh, anytime Marty Scorsese talks these days, or more specifically writes, uh, he seems to create a good nose topic. You may remember uh, towards the end of 2019, uh, he basically said that Marvel uh, franchises and DC franchises were the equivalent of theme parks and kind of sending cinema to hell in a handbasket. Well, he still sees cinema on the same theme park ride that goes to hell in a handbasket, but he's got other things to say about it now. This is all in the course, actually, of a loving tribute to Fellini, I think on the occasion of a Criterion boxed set of Fellini's work. uh, in Harper's uh, writing a lengthy essay about Fellini, but weaving in and out of that essay, essentially the contention that there might not be any more Fellinis because the business isn't really capable of presenting them uh, and making sure that people see their work. He uh, says that uh, the art of cinema is being, these are his words, systematically devalued, sidelined, demeaned, and reduced to its lowest common denominator content. He comes back to that word again and again. Anybody who works uh, in any of these businesses, including where I work right now, knows that we are now content. We work for content companies. He says it's been good for filmmakers, himself included. Quote, On the other hand, it has created a situation in which everything is presented to the viewer on a level playing field, which sounds democratic but isn't. If further viewing is suggested by algorithms based on what you've already seen, and the suggestions are based only on subject matter or genre, what does that do to the art of cinema. And he goes on. Um, as usual, this has created something of a backlash and then a backlash to the backlash. So let's have uh, our uh, people j- jump in on that. Once again, it's Tanisha Dugan and Lucy uh, Gilman. Uh, Tanisha, uh, did you uh, extract from uh, Marty
1: Scorsese's latest essay? You know, I, I, a lot of things. One, I think I I'm totally with you on like the net, we're all content creators, um, which makes me just think that we're all TikTok (laughs) superstars. (laughs) Um, But I think, I I think, you know, I'm conflicted with what Marty uh, has to offer, um, which is, I I too appreciate, or I should say, I appreciate democratization of culture. Um, But I think there is something about curation, and I think there is something about this world of cinema that, to me, the kind of cinema he's talking about kind of emerged from the stages that I actually am interested in uh, repurposing and resharing at a time like this. So I think while... Ultimately, Marty and I, I think, sit on different ends of the spectrum as it relates to how people access the work that we do. I think um, offering quote unquote high art or ways inside uh, a visual storytelling um, that isn't easy to make with your iPhone or, um, you know, something you've got at home is worth uh, exploring and supporting.
0: Yeah. And although I would maybe say that I don't think I mean, obviously, the, all this takes place in, once again, his loving tri- tribute to Fellini and all the m- masterful stuff that Fellini did with the camera. But I don't think Marty is a, I think Marty is worried about the, the really brilliant thing that's made with your iPhone. I think that's one of the things <laughs> he thinks you're not going to see um, mm-hmm. uh, because of this whole curation question that you bring up. Lucy, uh, how did this go for you?
2: Yeah, I'm, I mean, in, in some ways, I'm very much on the same page as Tanisha. But I also think that so we all hate algorithms. I think that's like the the secret, right? Like Marty is not the only one who hates algorithms. We all dislike them. And pe- I mean, people joke about the um, sort of the the targeted ads or the targeted movies that come up for them on Netflix or on Hulu or on Facebook. You know, the, the great blue menace at this point. Um, But but I think complaining about the amount of content also removes agency from the view. like I trust viewers to make their decision. Um, I also think that there is a lot of really exciting content that is accessible to people because of streaming platforms in a way that it would not be otherwise now. Like, are, are streaming platforms a good thing? Is the corporate takeover of cinema a good thing? No, probably not, but neither is Amazon, and we can talk about that all day. <laughs> so, um, so so, that's kind of where I am. And, and then I also think, like, there is a really exciting thing that is happening with the democratization of these platforms. I mean, like, yes, you have to slog through a lot of awful content if you go on a platform like TikTok, but TikTok also gave birth to a musical about Ratatouille where all of a sudden you could see YSD grads for not $600, which is what you're going to pay if you're seeing a show on Broadway. Of course, Broadway's closed right now. But, um, you, you know, I think, I think to say this is the death of cinema really takes away from some of the exciting possibilities of the moment that we're living in.
0: Yeah, and I'm not sure he was really saying this is the death of cinema. I, I would yes. also question whether we all hate algorithms. Uh, mm. I, I mean, maybe you hate algorithms, maybe I do, I maybe, hate maybe, maybe yeah. Okay, we may, I, be, I think people use algorithms. I don't, I don't think they think, oh, I'm using an algorithm right now. But they like the fact that Netflix shows them stuff that they might like. They like the fact that Amazon does the same thing. They don't want to have to wade through a bunch of stuff they don't, they don't like. I mean, I think there's a lot of us who object to it and who do feel exactly, as Scorsese does, that we're being shown a whole bunch of stuff. And then, I mean, I'll just say that last night— um, I was tired, uh, but I wanted to watch a little something and so it turns out and I was already on HBO Max because we're doing this movie And so it turns out that HBO Max the sort of so-called classic content that they have is kind of on a separate hub as they put it that is curated by TCM uh, It's not TCM, but somebody from TCM curates it so It actually has some really good movies there, although it's also the case that apparently, like, All the Right Moves with Tom Cruise is a classic (laughs) movie. I don't quite understand how that would be, but, uh, or like, The Electric Horseman, which is kind of an okay Robert Redford movie, but it's a classic, like The Searchers or something. I don't think so. But anyway, um, you know, so I decided I would watch a little bit of A Hard Day's Night, which I haven't watched in a long time, and I was watching it, and I didn't want to watch the whole thing, but it made me think of how much I like Richard Lester's directing, and so I thought, well, I wonder who's got Richard Richard Lester's Three Musketeers movies right now. The Oliver Reed, you know, Michael York uh, ones that are so terrific, Charlton Heston and Fade Dunaway. So, I typed that into search and it turns out Amazon has it. Amazon has it for free. So, I watched, you know, I don't know, 45 minutes of that, too, but I thought None of this is going to be offered to me if I don't go looking for it, and and those aren't even really great movies or anything. They're just kind of good movies, and, and I think that that really is important. That yes, Lucy, to your point, there are lots and lots of really terrific independent, low finance stuff that are that's crawling up onto these platforms, uh, and and for that matter, it's never been easier if you do Criterion or Canopy or one of these things to to watch a Boonwell or a, or for that matter HBO Max to watch a well movie or a, a Fellini movie or a Bergman movie, but it's also never been less likely because they're distracting mm. you all the time with this other stuff.
2: See, I this, totally disagree with you, Colin. Okay. I, I think that that argument really undersells and, and does not trust viewers. And so, so two things, um, if we're going to talk about low art, I think there's no problem with someone who needs an escape from the fact that we're going on 12 months of, it, it's like the most horrible 12 months I can remember in a, a long time in my life at least. And and if they need an escape by watching a dumb show about people getting married on a desert island or something like that, right? There's nothing wrong with that. But I also think it completely does not trust people to go out and look for content. And I know that, I, like uh, there are so many friends and colleagues that I have that I can think of who work in different fields who really do go out and they seek lists of small budget films of these older films that are now on streaming platforms of foreign language films that have received great acclaim but maybe aren't so well known and all of a sudden those are accessible um, so I, I I mean
1: I suspect I, yeah. you're talking about a very specific demographic though I think you know for me while I think having the ability to, Find these things. I think there's something, and I, I think we t- we talked about this, you know, when I was on the nose last. You know, one of the reasons why the endorsements are s- is such a juicy part of the nose week to week is that people that you kind of trust, or at least have known for some time, are telling you, "Hey, check this thing out." And and part of you know the the uniqueness of the of the selections and the TCM uh, like you know, uh curation for this month and your sort of curiosity, Colin, about like, well, why did this one end up in this mix? Is because it's 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 chosen by a person with a particular set of tastes. Um and and I think that's really important. I think, yes, having the rabbit hole offering is great, but it's the same as like going to the library, right? There's a certain demographic of folks who go to the library, and I'm probably talking very old school, who would be like, (laughs) yes, let me go down every aisle and and pick what draws me, whether it's because of the cover or because of the author's name. But most people are like, hey, librarian, I want to learn about this, or I want to read about that. (laughs) Tell me what book to pick up. And I think we're in this interesting space between have at it folks go to the library and pick up whatever you want and a lack of librarians for to carry Mm. out the metaphor that kind of can say to you you just saw a Fellini movie you just saw a Martin Scorsese movie you might also like XYZ P, and you may never have thought of this thing, because I happen to be an expert on movies and and have an understanding of, of where you might find something that would draw you that you may not know based on your own experience.
0: Yeah, I, I just like in the episode you're talking about that you were on recently, one of the points that I made is that, you, and Lucy, I'm going to argue that all of us are kind of in bubbles, you know, mm. and, and you're in kind of a New Haven arts bubble, you know, <laughs> which is a real bubbly, but it's a really, it's a pretty small <laughs> a and pretty selected <laughs> bubble, you know, for so like, for example, when the Golden Globe nominations comes out, comes out, I think this might be part of what Tanisha's referring to, there was outrage that I, I may destroy you had not gotten a lot of you know, nominations. And so I looked it up. On its air dates, what it actually dropped uh, on its cable platform, which is also HBO, I think, they had audiences of like 80,000 or 84,000 people watching this. I mean, that's a really, really tiny audience for the major release of something. And, and I think, you know, Lucia, I, I love that you credit you know, consumers of art with the ability to self curate. But I I do think that that's a very, very small and selected group of people. I think more people are watching Tiger King than are watching uh, eight and a half, not just because they need some release, relief and release, but because they couldn't be bothered to go find eight and a half or something else unless somebody gives them a reason to do it.
1: Or Bridgerton, right? Because the the marketing has behind a project like a Bridgerton uh, Will bring it to the masses in a way that the marketing, you know, heft behind "I May Destroy You" is not the case. And I suspect there's part of that that Martin Scorsese is talking about, right? Like when he says cinema, it's also the the infrastructure behind a movie that supports its release into the world, not simply the art of it, which I think he also talking about. But if there's no one to say, hey. Watch this thing, or there's no real marketing effort to get the word out about a project that he is making. I'm not sure Martin Scorsese stays relevant in a time like now, right? And and, and I think there's a little bit of self preservation in kind of what he's talking about too. Sorry, Lucy, I, I heard your your voice.
2: No, you're you're fine. Um, it. I always chuckle at thinking, oh, an, an older white man making an argument for self preservation. I've I've never heard that before, <laughs> um, but. Uh, no, I, I. mean, I. I would push back. I. I still would push back against the um, bubble. Not because I don't like to think of myself in a bubble, but, um, sure. New Haven, maybe New Haven is like crunchier and and artsier, um, but I think we are also at a point where we're desperate, or or I. I should say I am at this point where, um, because it's the winter, because folks can't see each other or be in each other's homes. I think there's a desperation for social interaction, and a lot again, a lot of these suggestions are coming from not just like lists that film critics are putting out, but also movies that friends are watching, uh, and not just friends in New Haven, friends around the country. Um, so I, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I also think there's the question of like how much of this is just nostalgia for a, a time that is lurching forward that we we can't do like we can't do that much about. The corporate um, takeover of of any sector of America after after a certain point. I mean, I that's sad to think about, but um, but I I think like you know how, how much of this is just Scorsese feeling powerless in a certain moment as well.
0: I I know I'm going to push back against that, and I'm really going to push back against the white guy self-preservation thing. And I'll give you an example. <laughs> No, I'll give you an I'll give you an example. All right. So if you go on that HBO Max TCM curated classic hub there, one of the movies you can watch is called Black Girl. It's a movie by the Senegalese director from Ormanes Sembene from 1966. Now, the reason it's there and probably the reason there's a usable print that they can that, that they have that they can extract and do whatever they have to do to put it on a streaming platform is probably Marty Scorsese. Marty Scorsese founded the World Cinema Project to preserve the work of lesser-known foreign directors, specifically Simbani, this Senegalese director, is one where they've really made an effort to make sure his films don't get lost. And but I mean, there's tons of more examples. This is a guy who, yes, he's made a lot of gangster movies, but he spent a lot of his career fostering the work a of directors of color, foreign directors, young directors, independent directors. You know, he, I don't think he has to preserve himself anymore. He's going to be fine. He's releasing. Killers of the Flower Moon uh, you know, on on Apple Plus of all places ironically uh, pretty soon uh, with DiCaprio and Jesse Plemons who's in the movies Marty Skorski is going to be fine he really is I think genuinely worried that people won't have the experience that he had as an asthmatic kid or whatever he was and he couldn't go outside and he fell in love with movies and he could find all these incredible movies he's worried people are not going to find Fellini he's worried that people are not going to see this stuff that he loves so much uh, I I think the days of Marty worrying about his self-preservation are kind of over at this point. He's 78 like years old and he's a giant.
1: I feel like it's a both and, right? Which is that, yeah, I agree with you, Colin. There's no way that like film history does not include a chapter on Martin Scorsese. Absolutely not. But I do think between now and when he departs to another plane, we may not be so interested in the things that he's making. I also think you're absolutely right that this is an art question for him. This is a question about whether or not people will access these things. And I also think it's a question of whether or not people will continue to make these things mm. in this way, right? I mean, yes, he loves Fellini. There are like years of interviews where he speaks so much about how much he loves Fellini, but what Fellini offers that isn't really happening in filmmaking right now is something that is visually arresting, that is making a case for some what we would call, you know, outside of realism, I would call theatrical. You know, this this idea that we're putting on screen something that is exactly like life, um, I think needs to be challenged, and I think the 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 films that he loves, the films that he's talking about, this particular filmmaker, Fellini, uh, is is a piece of the art form of filmmaking that I don't think is au courant, right? I don't think that's that's where the zeitgeist is right now, and I think he's making a case not only that are people not watching it um, and not being led to to find it and then go, oh, I love this, I want more of this, but that you know, whether it's reality television, which I think has a lot to do with what, what we're experiencing right now or something else, the work that we're seeing is very much like, let me plop the viewer in the middle of life, any mm. kind of life. And unless you're going to see a Marvel movie or you're seeing something that is that is uh, called fantasy, you're not getting a, a play on life. Um, and I use that with all the puns. Um, that, that kind of takes you outside of real life and allows you to begin to think critically or in a different way than than how you understand the world you're looking at.
0: I'm hanging back here, although I, I, I want to say, Lucy, one thing I do really agree about is the importance of people of, of community, which we don't have enough of right now because of the pandemic. And it is true. I mean, I'm older than you guys, so a lot of the Fellini watching that I did. Although I'm actually going to watch Eight and a Half maybe this weekend because they actually have it on HBO Max. But you know, I mostly did it in college. And why did I do it in college? Because we were all going to the movies in college, you know. And somebody said, "Well, oh, we got to go see Fellini." And like my friend Bill Curry is one of the people. I don't know if, uh, how recently he's done it, but for years he would ins- he would drag people to Bergman movies. People who were not necessarily grateful at the end to have you know. Uh, get three of his friends in the car to go see The Seventh Seal or something. People don't necessarily shake your hand and thank you at the end of that. But that—that's we, we do that for each other, and we do it more when we're younger. Uh, when you get older, I just don't think there's as much of at least that kind of thing. Maybe there's, hey, you should rent The Last Black Man in San Francisco. It's a really great movie. But I, I, I do agree that culture plays a role in all this, and we do do it for each other. But I, I once again feel that there's a very self-selecting quality to that, too. I'm just not sure all over America how much of that's getting done. Was,
2: was that a question?
0: Yeah. Or whether I, I don't know whether you wanted to see more about that.
2: No, I, I mean, I think that's true. The flip side is that I miss, um, as I think many of us, if not all of us do, like I really miss movie theaters, right? Um, and screening rooms, and and these places that are magical where you can, can see these things happen. And um, I think, Colin, you're absolutely right. There's nothing like walking into a small theater and seeing an old film um, that is preserved, presented in beautiful quality on a big screen, right? Um, but I, yeah, I, I just still don't know if I buy his argument. I think there is still art happening that takes us to magical experimental places. I understand. I mean, I understand the fear that like people won't find that because they're watching Bridgerton or because they're watching Tiger King. Um, but uh, yeah, I, that's, that's as far as I'm going to go.
0: Well, you know, I think curation can happen in other ways. And you know who I think is a terrific cur- curator uh, uh, in the way that i Scorsese hopes people will be is Obama. You know, I mean, we huh? we we did um, Atlantics, another Senegalese movie, actually Atlantics here on the nose, partly because Obama had his on his list of really great movies from that year. You know, I, I think he's somebody who's really makes an effort when he puts out all these lists of I read these books and I like these movies and I like these songs. You know, he's kind of doing a curation in a way that Scorsese talks about. I think what Scorsese thinks is you shouldn't need an unusually culture avid ex president there should be something that's more kind of endemic to the movie business that's doing
1: that tanisha you you probably get the last word here well it sounds like if i take what where you're where you're leading us towards scorsese is suggesting that studios are better positioned for that and i actually think love love him or hate him the sort of human connection you know of an obama or your friend or your favorite writer in whatever publication you love or this guy on the radio you spend every day with that matters and in a time like now where there where community is hard to find as you said lucy it's it's hard it's hard to really dig into the folks that you care about having those sort of folks to tell you hey you know i really love this thing you should check it out it, it It means a lot, and I think it's gonna mean a lot moving forward. I don't see us coming back to public spaces in the same way um unless they're people that we already know and w- that are part of whatever the pod looks like <laughs> um you know post vaccine but i but i think I think we're gonna rely on on trusted folks that aren't just already in our in our universes to sort of say. Make sure you check out Soul.
0: <laughs> I, I think we're I think we're gonna rent small multiplex theaters and go to them with our friends and and maybe we will. To Lucy, to your point, you know, we'll all say, Oh, you know what? Let's rent a, mo- a movie theater and make them show you know uh, whatever. Make them show Atlantics or some really cool <laughs> independent movie and just us and we'll sit wherever we want to sit and nobody will sit too sit too close to anybody they don't want to sit to and you know, if Gorman Bichard is there, no one will chew popcorn too loudly. Whatever, but uh, you know, we may wind up doing that. We may wind up curating our audience, our fellow audience members, as well as what we watch. All right, I'm talking too much. Let's take a break. We're going to come back. We've got this very interesting movie to talk about. What happened?
2: What happened? Hey Marty! Hey Marty! Hey Marty! What happened with you? Saturday we had a party.
0: A party. Frankie and Lou, everybody but you. Where was your Thursday? Hey Marty, hey Marty, hey Marty, hey, Marty. for our bowling game. It seems like a year
2: since we chuckled up the view. Hey Marty, whatever. You can jail a revolutionary, but you can't jail a revolution.
0: that's actually a, a piece by Fred uh, by excuse me by Curtis Noahsad called never forget what they did to Fred Hampton which we played on this show in 2019 or probably in 2020 when it was released in 2019 uh, in our Best Jazz of the Year show that came up. So, uh, Fred Hampton uh, is uh, also one of many things, and that's his actual voice at the beginning of the show. Uh, in the movie Judas and the Black Messiah, when you hear his voice, you hear Daniel Kaluuya, uh, the amazing, amazing uh, actor who is paired up with Lakeith Stanfield, who's an even more amazing actor, in my opinion, who plays Bill O'Neill, the man who betrayed uh, not only Fred Hampton, but many, many, many other black activists in the Black Panther Party uh, in general. Uh, this uh, is uh, Shaka King's uh, studio feature film directorial debut uh, with some producing help from Ryan Kugler. Not insignificant, I think. Uh, and. There's a lot to say about this uh, real-life story from the from our not that distant past, and kind of part of a pattern right now too. It's the trial of the Chicago Seven, uh, which uh, saw showed us at least a little bit of Bobby Seale, and now we've got coming out all at the same time, pretty much uh, the United States versus Billie Holiday, uh, which is the uh, story of Billie Holiday's uh, encounters with the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, uh, and uh, also Sam Pollard's uh, documentary uh, about Martin Luther King and the FBI, MLK slash FBI. So uh, here at uh, Black History Month, we're kind of exploring a kind of Black history that doesn't always kind of make it onto uh, the playing field. So uh, I've talked too much again. So let's go to our panelists, uh, Tanisha Dugan and Lucy Gelman. Uh, Lucy, why don't you get us started here? Uh, let's talk a little bit about this movie. Just in general, um, give us your your thumbnail.
2: Yeah, I, um, I, I really, really enjoyed the movie. I think it's the first time I've watched something for your show that I enjoyed, actually. So props there, Colin. Um, I, uh, I, Carolyn, I thought, I it. sorry? I said you and Carolyn Pink. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> That's right. Uh, there was a zombie movie that wasn't horrible, but um, but but I really, so one, I I want to make sure that we make room for not only Daniel Clea and Lakeith Stanfield, who are standouts in this movie, but also Dominique Fishback, who plays mm-hmm. Deborah Johnson. And I actually think she is the unspoken or perhaps spoken star um, of, of this movie. She really was for me. Um, But I have been thinking a lot about um, how many moments were not taught in history and how there is something really exciting happening in cinema, or if you don't want to call it cinema, just film or movies right now, um, that is sort of revisiting that history. And it's revisiting that history through the eyes of Black filmmakers, some of whom have not been able to make their work or present their work to uh, a large audience um, before And I I think that's really exciting. It also worked for me because I have just been thinking a lot more about the Panthers and the legacy of the Panthers in New Haven, which plays a very small but meaningful role in this movie. Last year, of course, was the 50th anniversary of the Panther trials. And there was a lot of art and culture around that in the city. And so um, that was very present for me while I was watching the film.
1: Yeah. uh,
0: Tanisha, I just want to hear kind of off the top of your head.
1: I've got like so I have a million things shooting out of my brain as it relates to this film. Um I will start with the you know you you played um some music and and the soundtrack for this uh project is amazing. Um I will piggyback or or lo- rocket launch off of what you're saying Lucy. I think um Dominique it, it, as Deborah Reynolds is amazing. That final scene could be played a million in one ways and to see just sort of the resignment and strength um, as opposed to sort of this this the choice of being in a puddle um, was just so um, essential to the way Black women move through this space. And Mm. I think, you know, Nina Simone said it best, right? An artist's job is to reflect the time. And I think what the proliferation of all of these movies means to me is a reflection of our American history that is not written uh, through the vision of white supremacy, right? That is not written uh, through the intent to maintain the hierarchy as it currently stands, but to to reintroduce in some cases to remind um, to my to my boomers um, of where of whence they came um, and the story that they left behind. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm excited for, for the work that's coming out right now and and the stories and the history, um, and the culture shifting that I think we're attempting to do. We'll see what happens, you know, in some ways I think of, I may destroy you, you know, Colin and sort of like, how will this, uh, elevate so that folks are really paying attention. Uh, it seems like this project is going to get the Oscar buzz, um, Uh, as it uh, or awards buzz I should say as as it deserves um, and that will help in in telling the story but you know Fred Hampton and is is um, is not our favorite black hero right and and watching black men black people make a choice over their own personal survival or the survival of the people is is difficult to see but it but it was it, it was incredible it was it was a it was a good it was a good moment uh for me in, right. this, in this before we go further
0: i want to play a little bit from the film and since we're talking uh, about dominique fishback as deborah johnson let's play a clip that has her in it uh here uh deborah and uh, fred hampton uh, are talking uh, she's just read him some poetry as uh, she is pregnant with his child uh, let's hear a little bit of that
1: hey, what are you doing This private Private.
2: You think you're gonna be a bad mother?
1: It was a question.
2: Why you gotta ask yourself that?
1: I don't, I don't know. Maybe the fact that I'm bringing a child into a war zone. These aren't considerations you have to make. You get to go out there talk about dying a revolutionary death and how your, your body belonged to the revolution because You don't have another person growing inside your body.
2: So you regret it? What? I have my baby. Do you? When I dedicated my life to the people, I dedicated my life. You did.
0: So I want to ask both of you about what I think is kind of an interesting choice in this movie. Um, And and that is, you know, it's called Judas and the Black Messiah. And I would argue that despite the incredible poignance of a scene like that one and and many other scenes in which uh, Fred Hampton's uh, character is prominently featured, It's a little bit more the story of William O'Neill. I mean, I think we see him more. We see the story through him. We see him being turned by the FBI in the form of a corpulent uh, agent played by Jesse Plemons, who is going to— uh, didn't have the lead in the new Scorsese movie, but as, as I think a good FBI agent in that one. He's a bad FBI agent in this. Uh, and, and that character eventually threatens him first with prison, and then once he's turned, once he's been useful, threatens to feed him to the Panthers. Uh, but we see a lot of the existential d- dilemma of this young man, William O'Neill, who's kind of blundered into this situation and made the choices that he has so that he's made. So I feel like, you know, the narrative of the movie is a little bit more through his eyes than, than Hampton's or anybody else's. But uh, go ahead and push back against that or, or agree with it. Lucy, uh, why don't you start?
2: Yeah, I'm I'm not sure. I, I will say, Colin, when you said that, my mind immediately went to um, one of the first, if not the first shot of the film, which is uh, sort of aimed at uh, Bill O'Neill's back. And it's a it's a beautiful and kind of arresting shot. And I think it sets the the viewer up for at least that as one possible interpretation of the movie that this is, if not a story of Fred Hampton and Bill O'Neill, um, you know, very much a story of Bill O'Neill. I don't know if I felt like it. Yeah, I I don't know if I I would totally agree with that because I feel like Stanfield, um, well, he is tremendous in this movie. Actually, does not. Um, there, there were times when I wanted him to have a little bit more to work with. That said, he does the um, sort of the, as you said, existential dilemma, the paranoia of that moment so, so well. Um, and he just, he really commits to the character. And I think it may have been in one of the articles we read for the show that he, um, playing this character, actually um, pushed him to see a therapist. And I, and you completely understand why, watching the movie.
0: Yeah, I just would, I would just add, and I want to hear Tanisha on this, that really the first shot of the movie is the real Bill O'Neill being set up for an interview in, in a documentary. And then the last thing you see in the movie before a lot of CG comes on and tells you a lot of stuff that I, some of which I really feel should be in the movie somehow. But anyway, the last yeah. thing you see before that is the real Bill O'Neill, once again, answering some questions from, from that documentary film uh, group. Which one of the things that makes me think that O'Neill is the framing device, the framing character for the movie more than Hampton is. But but Tanisha, what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, I, I think... Uh, I'm actually pretty sure that O'Neill is the is the hero of the story. And actually, it was in notes that he received when he um, uh, when he shared it with Ava DuVernay and another director whose name escapes me, um, that the note came back that perhaps there should be some more Fred Hampton. So I'm not surprised that that your experience of it is like this feels like Judas with a side of uh, Black Messiah, because I think that's that is absolutely the case, and I think you know left to his own devices, I think Shaka King may have made a movie only about O'Neill with with Fred Hampton really being a supporting role. Um, so so yeah, I, I think I think I think that the framing of that is, is intentional, um, and, and and I wish you know I don't know how many people sort of know the story of O'Neill, but I do kind of wish there was. Um, and understanding that, like you're going to go full circle in in this journey, mm. um, because that interview that you see is, and you know is 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 O'Neill's last moment in many ways, right? Mm-hmm. When that was aired, yep. uh, the day it was aired, he committed suicide. That's not a spoiler alert. That is like history. And I do think that there's something about understanding the fullness of the story that for me, gave me more insight into to the choices Lakeith was making. Because I think in a vacuum, I may have thought to myself, oh, he, he's treating the, the night of, of Fred's death so um, uh, delicately and, and there's so much um, conflict and emotion within this man. Um, I don't know if I buy it, <laughs> but I think knowing you know the journey of O'Neill in real life, uh, Seeing that much conflict, I think, is is much more rewarding um, than I than I think without not having that context.
0: Uh, yeah, well, I, I want to hear what Lucy has to say quickly. I will say, if I have a criticism of this movie, although I, I really do just worship these two actors, but. Bill O'Neill was 17 years old when he was yes. recruited oh, by the God. FBI. Yeah, you know, LeKeith Stanfield is 29, and he doesn't look any 17 years old. He looks like to me a young man, you know, who's about 29 years old. In fact, Lakeith <laughs> Stanfield looks to like be a little bit
1: older than 29 at times. But so, oh, I mean, when you look at um, O'Neill's interview, and he's supposed oh, yeah. to be like. 39. He yeah. actually looks very old. So mm-hmm. you're also like, maybe this was just an old looking man. And also like, that's what America does to black people. We tend to be yeah. like evergreen until we start looking weathered.
0: <laughs> but but of- I do, I do think that because that really isn't, I mean, there, there is a moment at the beginning where, where O'Neill's trying to pull off a heist in a bar. And at some points, the, the people in the bar go, wait a minute, he's just a kid because he's right. pretending to be something else. But I don't think that point is driven home, that this is, you know, he makes all kinds of choices for which he has, you know, historically been kind of vilified. Uh, but he's 17 years old, you know, and he's trying to navigate this incredibly complex chain of, of coercion that goes right to the top uh, w- with J. Edgar Hoover, played by Martin Sheen, which is a very weird choice. Uh, and and I just sort of think, you know, and for that matter, Fred Hampton was, I think, 22 when he died. Uh,
1: Kalu- is Kalu- in his early 30s. He doesn't really seem like, I mean, these are young guys. I think you make such, sorry, Lucy, and Lucy, I want you to hop in, but I think, Colin, you make such an important point, especially as this project relates to shifting culture. And I think there's a conversation happening right now about... Black children being treated as adults. And I do believe 100% that had the casting been more in line with the real ages of these people, that elevation of this conversation we're having amongst ourselves about treating Black children as if they're grown people um, could have hit so much harder. And I, while I agree, I love Lakeith, I love Daniel, uh, I wish the casting had, had, had really forced us to reckon with What's happening right now? Because it was easy for me to make the Breonna Taylor connection at the end of the movie. I think it's really hard to make the Trayvon Mark- Martin argument when you're looking at thirty-year-old men. Sorry, Lucy.
2: No, don't please don't apologize. I um I actually I agree with that a hundred percent. I I don't know how much more I have to say. Although Tanisha, I do want to just agree with you that the soundtrack is totally. It's it's. I was just geeking out the whole time.
1: Mm-hmm. Um.
2: It, yeah. It it did it for me. I'm, so many things about this movie did it for me too, um, but, but yes.
0: Well, the thing that punctuates so much of the movie is this kind of blaring, blatting horn cord, this kind of discordant, aharmonic horn chord that they keep hitting you with. And after a while, it really starts to rattle your nerves, I think, in, in a way that it's, uh, it's very much uh, intended to do. I, I do want to say, and, uh, and then we'll have to probably take a break, but I'd love to get your reactions to this. There was a scene that intrigued me. Was, okay, so, so Jesse Plemons plays this kind of horrible guy who's just doing horrible things to to Bill O'Neill uh, so that he can do even more horrible things to Fred Hampton and other Black Panthers. But there's a scene where he meets with J. Edgar Hoover and another FBI agent and Martin Sheen, who who I adore, but I don't think he was, I don't think he should have played J. Edgar Hoover. But he he, he at one point turns to this fairly young FBI agent, played by Jesse Plemons, and, and starts saying, how are your kids? And he knows their names and ages. And I don't think that's to show what a pleasant guy Hoover is. I think that's Hoover saying at that point to this agent, if you think I don't have a dossier on you, if you think that you are operating at a level kind of above the, the, the muck pool that I've, you know, made you create there uh, in Chicago. You are absolutely wrong. I've got you too. Uh, and I thought that was sort of an interesting touch. They don't really do very much with it. But uh, I took that anyway as, you know, uh, as a way of sort of saying, well, there there are bigger powers than this smart cigar smoking uh, posh restaurant frequenting agent. I don't know. Anybody want to react to that? I only want react.
1: Martin Sheen as cast of J. Edgar Hoover and say, I absolutely agree with you. But I also think that making Black filmmakers making movies is really hard. And so in some ways, it's a reconnect to like why did they, they cast these wonderful actors in these roles that really are meant for seven, 17 and 21 year olds. And I think it's about a kind of star power that helps to push this movie into green light territory, even though there's a lot of uh, prosthetics that's happening with Mr. She. <laughs> yeah. yes.
0: Lucy, you get the <laughs> last, right. you get the last word on uh, this movie.
2: No, I, I mean, I th- I think what does work about that scene, which is so much of what does work about this film is that it makes a, a viewer, or at least it made me think about how much of this is still so very current today and how, how little the historical needle has moved um, in, in the intervening years. And so I think what does work about that is immediately my mind went to how much the the surveillance state is still, I mean, that's still a mechanism of, of the times we live in today. And so, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Although I agree on the prosthetics front, Tanisha. (laughs) All right. So
0: it's uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, Yeah, I think this one, Marty would be happy because, I mean, I think HBO Max is really making also an effort to curate and showcase this and make sure it's there on your home page when you jump on uh, their platform. So uh, we all recommend it and we're going to take a break and we'll come back. All right, we're back with the nose. Got to say thanks to Cat Pastor. She's the technical producer there in the studio, making it possible for the rest of us to work remotely and making it possible for the show to sound good. Special thanks to Jonathan McPants, who's the producer of this and most other nose episodes. He, at the same time, he's doing this, he's putting the final touches on our final episode of, pardon me, another damn impeachment show, uh, which uh, in, for its second season, uh, and that's going to go up. Uh, well, it'll be available on the air tomorrow at noon. Uh, it'll go up as a podcast when. Remember, Jonathan gets it done, but it's hard to do these two things at once. This particular episode, which I didn't want to do and fought against doing, is possibly for that reason one of the best we've ever done. I think this is just going to be a terrific episode. I really encourage people uh, to listen to it. We've got great guests and commentary, and we got Wilfie doing factoids and all kinds of stuff like that. So, a very unusual type of factoid. So, maybe we should like hate the idea of what we're doing more often because <laughs> it, uh, it certainly resulted in something really good. So, please find some way to Listen to pardon me when we get it ready for you all right uh, our wonderful panel today is lucy gelman and tanisha dugan tanisha why don't you get us going with some recommendations
1: I have one today, and it's the City of Baltimore and their Arts and Culture Transition Committee, um, as it was leaded by my dear friend Jessica Solomon. I encourage folks to read their transition report. The City of Baltimore is really um, envisioning uh, a city in which arts and culture are deeply embedded in public life, and I think we all could learn a thing or two about... Including creatives in our process as we're building policy and the new vision uh, for the world we want to live in so uh, shout out to Mayor Brandon Scott and the city of Baltimore and their arts and culture transition committee. Um, kudos guys.
0: Wow, that's a really interesting one. I'm I am gonna I have I know nothing about this. I am going to track it down. Uh, Lucy Gilman. How about you?
2: Yeah, um I have two really quick ones. I also love uh the city of Baltimore, so thank you, Tanisha. Um so the first is Steve McQueen's small acts yeah. series or mm-hmm. or film. It depends how you're thinking about it. When you are slogging through all of that content and going through the algorithms and you can't find what you want to watch, I recommend watching this series. It is um really, really good and very powerful. And then The second is a conversation that the New Haven Free Public Library held earlier this week, but it's on YouTube if you just look for the public library, between the poet Reginald Dwayne Betts and Cave Canem co-founders, Toy Derricotte and um, Cornelius E.D. So it's it's a conversation about poetry. It's also a conversation about how much they love libraries. And it reminded me in this period that um, I, I think every single person has at least one Library story that is really close to their heart. Um, And I sort of geeked out about the conversation. So um, Again, if you check out just the New Haven free public library on Facebook or on YouTube, you can find that conversation Um, And while you're there on the internet, I also just recommend like every single alumnus um, who has come out of Cave Canem uh, treat yourself to some wonderful poetry this weekend.
0: All right. Well, yeah, people should be reading poetry all the time anyway. Um, so I will recommend two things that are sort of, I don't know, these are the kind, kinds of curation that Marty probably wants us to do, but um, <laughs> a uh, sort of a guilty pleasure with maybe some substance to it is uh, uh, Sofia Coppola's uh, new movie On the Rocks with just a tremendous performance by Rashida Jones uh, and and, uh, and <laughs> a really crazy performance by uh, Bill Murray. And I'm, I may not be a reliable witness on this movie because Bill Murray plays a version of a friend of mine who is very dear to me and is, is impossible and delightful in all of the ways that Bill Murray is as he portrays Rashida Jones's father uh, in this situation. So, uh, it, but the movie's a lot. Of, I think it's a lot of fun. I don't know. Maybe it's not not as much fun as I think it is. And then, The Sound of Metal. Uh, Riz Ahmed is another one of these just terrific young actors that we are lucky to have around. Ever since uh, the night of, I have been following this guy. I think he's tremendous. He plays a, a metal drummer, also a recovering heroin addict, a recovering everything addict, I think he kind of says at one point, who loses his hearing. And, you know, that could be one of these kinds of overcoming hardship, overcoming disease stories, uh, and, you know, that that sometimes can be a little bit more of a cliche. I don't think it is this time. I think they do a lot with it. They do also, and as some of you know, our our show uh, has been very involved at times with the deaf community. They do a lot. Uh, on the culture and politics of deafness in a way that you might not see uh, in the typical kind of overcoming disease and hardship movie. So uh, The Sound of Metal, really recommend that one. You might have to look a little bit for that one. All right, so we were lucky to have two terrific panelists today. Tanisha Dugan, artistic producer at TheaterWorks. Lucy Gelman is editor of the Arts Paper and host of WNHH Radio's Kitchen Sink. Listen to, pardon me, it's season two, episode four. I don't know. I'm not sure. Is that right? Uh, anyway, yes, yes, season two, episode four. We'll have it up for you on the podcast platforms very soon. I say we pants has to do all the work. Danberry,
2: Waterberry, All the wood Woodberry, Hitting on New Britain. Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 I'm on the radio, see you on the radio, on the radio, baby, you and me talking laughing now,